Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this episode of the Go Boldly Mastermind podcast. I am so excited today to have Aaron Hale on. Last uh, two weeks ago, I was on his show and uh, should be posting soon. And um, and Aaron's just got an amazing story and and just the things that he does. And before we were before we were on the on the recording here, uh, Aaron, you you shared that everything in your life changed the minute you started focusing and helping others. And so, welcome to the show and. Let's just start there. Scott, thank you for having me on. And of course, thank you for being on my show. I really appreciate it. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation and I can't wait to continue it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Aaron, um, our audience clearly, um, if they're listening to this or listening uh, and not seeing the video. And so maybe just tell tell the audience a little bit about yourself and um, some of the the things that you've got going on and let's just start kind of at the beginning. Yeah. Okay. Well, I grew up in Ohio. I was an all American uh, slacker growing up. Uh, I just had enough natural ability and talent to get by without having to do a whole lot of uh, work effort, you know? And so, um, you know, once I got to college and didn't have a whole lot of ambition of work ethic, everybody who knew how to work hard, passed me by and I was, I was uh, three semesters and my freshman 50 later, I was uh, out on my butt and needed a new start. So oh I joined goodness. the military, wow. joined, the, joined the military, uh, became a Navy cook, then an army bomb tech, uh, went blind and deaf start, and started uh, a, uh, chocolate company, a real estate company, got married, twins, and uh, a 12-year-old son, and ultra runner. Wow. Wow. So as you as you know, I'm, I'm in the Army, and I'm actually getting ready to head to Germany and to, to work with uh, the Ukrainians. And um, so thank you for, for serving and for the sacrifice that you literally lots of sacrifices that you made. So grateful for you. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, you're worth it. Your audience is worth it. My family is. Absolutely. So you kind of you kind of said it real quickly, but you you joined the army. You became a bomb tech, and uh, I think becoming a bomb tech literally changed your everything about your life, didn't it? Yeah. Well, the thing is about that. Uh, you know, I started in the navy, went to the army, started as a cook, went to explosive ordnance disposal bomb squad in the military uh and that's just one heck of a uh, course correction i tell people like <laughs> i got my first confirmed kill with a cheesecake then i decided to start saving lives instead but uh the truth is uh i joined in 99 it was a uh, it was a time of peace and i was stationed in italy it was a fantastic uh you know, time to be in the Navy as a cook stationed in Italy. It was fantastic. And then all of a sudden we found ourselves in two wars and uh, I'd gotten those internal uh, skills. I'd learned how to get out of bed early and work hard and accomplish things and feel good about working hard and and doing a good job and making my bed and all that kind of stuff. And then I accidentally picked up some other core values about you know, teamwork and, and working towards 
being a part of something that was just far bigger than myself and pride yeah. in service and, you know, doing it for the people to my left and right instead of just for me. And I became, became a leader. And I realized that even though I love cooking and I love the Navy, I just I was um, I wasn't utilizing my skills, my abilities, my talents, my creativity in a way that would best serve these 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 new core values of you know service to my country. And even though I love being in Italy and I love cooking for three star admirals, I I just I I was I was itching to do something for the the military cause, right? For the you know the for you know the mission. And yeah. I volunteered to go to Afghanistan. Yeah, I was cooking out there for my first deployment, but that's when I met some EOD technicians, the, the military's bomb squad. I learned all about the the type of job they do, the high intensity, uh, the the knowledge base that they, you know, it's critical thinking skills that they need to have on the battlefield uh, to defeat every unexploded ordinance known to man from bullets to nuclear weapons, weapons of mass destruction, you name it, the chemical, biological, IEDs, the improvised uh, roadside bombs and suicide vests, all that stuff is within uh, the EOD wheelhouse. And it's a tight-knit brotherhood. And it's it's a life-saving. They're first responders on the battlefield. So everything just clicked. That's what I needed to do. Well, that's, you know, that's, it takes a lot of, to use a a term we used to use as children, guts, to put yourself, being willing to put yourself out there to, um, to check these things out, to make sure that they're safe, to to diffuse them, to, to do whatever you've got to do. What, what do you think it was that, that shifted inside of you? that turned kind of inside of you that said, you know, no matter what, I'm going to, I'm going to put the fear down. I'm not going to allow fear to, to control me. I'm going to, I'm going to do what I've got to do. What, what was that like? What was that for you? You know, up for, throughout human, human history, it's been man versus man. And this was a new kind of war in Iraq and Afghanistan it was changing to insurgency. We weren't, it wasn't nation state versus nation state. It was people, it was, it was this guerrilla type warfare, this asymmetric warfare. And we weren't fighting, you know, know, a line of infantrymen versus a a line of infantrymen uh, dug in the dirt. What we were fighting instead were these IEDs buried, hidden, like, just it's a, the whole battlefield was a, was a minefield and the front lines EUD was the front lines we were there to render you know find detect diffuse and dispose of these this you know hazard causing you know the maiming and uh, death creating uh, devices so that our service members could continue the mission and as soon as I learned, you know, that I could do this and 
That's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to save lives. I wanted to take care of my brothers and sisters in arms. Um, and frankly, it, it it was a challenge in, a, in and of itself being so technically difficult, so challenging that it, it was something I, I've always been drawn to a challenge and never been very risk averse. And that's exactly what you need. It's not being hazardous. It's not being, you know, you know, def you definitely have to be cognizant of the hazards, but you can't be afraid uh, to, you know, step forward and take action. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. Absolutely. Well, and tell me about the turning point for you. What happened in December of 2011? Sorry, Scott, you broke up there. So tell me, tell me what happened in December of 2011. Let's talk a little bit about that. Well, I was on my third deployment. Remember, I deployed once as a cook. Then I switched uniforms and jobs. I went from the Navy to the Army, trained up as an EOD tech, and deployed once to Iraq. And then in 2011, I was by that time an EOD team leader, the highest ranking guy you know certain you know technician on a three-person team and that's you know the most experienced the highest ranking is the one that gets into the bomb suit and makes that that long lonely walk uh and we'd been very busy it was in uh, the kandahar uh province and just just west of kandahar uh, city and I just come back from two weeks of my R&R vacation back in the United States. I got to see my firstborn turn one. And I'd only been around for a couple of months after his birth before I was gone. So it was great getting back to see him, see the whole family together for Thanksgiving uh, dinner, a uh, whole family reunion. It was a great last page in my you know mental photo album and i got back with my team and my you know we, we they picked me up in the armored truck and jumped into a supply convoy and we made it out uh towards our our little area of operation to get back to work and along the way on highway you know on route one is the the only real paved road in the entire country and along the way they called back and said there was an ID in the room. So I got to work and it was the exact same thing you've been seeing the entire deployment. It's just a jug, like a, a vegetable oil container you would find on your kitchen. They're full of homemade explosives, lamp cord, nine volt battery, and a pressure plate from plywood. So simple, so, so rudimentary, but it was everywhere. Yeah, again, somebody described it when I got out there. That you know, to give an idea of what the situation was like, they said every footstep is a deliberate act because they were just littered out there, and we were busy for eight months straight. I got my vacation time and then got right back to work immediately. I mean, it wasn't even in my own area; you know, we were just passing through. Um, but we were the closest team, you know, and 
we, the robot took care of business. We separated the components and I wanted to get some uh, evidence to send up to hire so we could get these guys before they could get, you know, more into the ground. And along my approach, after I jumped out of the truck, there was a secondary device. It hadn't yet been detected. That thing punted me into the air. Uh, you know, my lights went out immediately. Uh, my head just like you just rung my bell felt like I was inside of gone and I was still awake I don't know how lucid I was but I landed on my knees and elbows and my first thoughts were to my team the security card on what's going on around me that military training came in and I was thinking okay what happens next there may be a uh what they call uh uh, uh complex ambush where you set off a an ied everybody gets distracted then they start shooting with small arms and stuff right. uh is everybody in that convoy that's supposed to be holding security now looking at what just happened in the middle of the you know they are they looking in rather than looking out and my team i know they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do they've got to clear a safe path in to get me so the medics can pull me out and i thought that uh, I mean, my, I, I was still awake. Uh, I was still, I was still, you know, conscious and thinking these things. And I didn't want anybody to come in to this potentially hazardous area to come get me and potentially risk more lives. So I figured that my helmet had just gotten pushed over my head and I wanted to fix that and get back into the fight. First, I did the the functions check. We got the fingers and, and toes yeah. and make sure everything was more or less still where I left it. Uh, when that was done, I reached up to f- grab my helmet to find out that the, the helmet was gone. <laughs> and that's when I thought, I don't know, my first sergeant's going to kill me for losing that thing. Uh, and uh, it's funny what goes through that's, your head. <laughs> absolutely. But uh, then I realized that, you know, of course, something had, you know, had actually taken some damage. But I didn't, I still didn't want my team coming in after me if I could get to them. So I started making my way towards the uh, the armored truck when, of course, I had no idea where the truck was anymore. I mean, I couldn't see. So I'm pretty much just doing a zombie walk around, you know, you know, this, you know, desert. My team, you know, they they caught up with me, grabbed me, dragged me back to the truck. And within 14 minutes, remember, I just, just come from Kandahar. The 14 minutes, the medevac chopper picked me up and I was heading right back. And within 48 hours, I was in Bethesda, Maryland at uh, Walter Reed uh, Naval Medical Center. And they acted quick on that. But that, I can't imagine what that must have been like to just not have any aware visual awareness. And just, but at the same time, your all of your focus was on your team um it was i mean and, it was what do i do what do i do next what's going to happen um i can't see am i going to be putting other people in, in danger i mean we serious you know the act of war had just happened an explosion had just happened right under my feet and I wanted to make sure that everybody around me was safe. I wasn't going to cause any, you know, that you in that situation, your your training 
definitely kicks in. And of course, it, the military training, uh, it definitely came in handy later on. So uh, the mentality of being in the service and doing what you're supposed to do and taking care of others, uh, lessons on resilience, it all helped out immensely uh, once I got to the hospital and, and beyond. Because the blast, it took both my eyes. Uh, it blew up my eardrums, but I could still hear. Uh, just not as much. And it, it cracked my, my skull to the point where I was leaking spinal fluid right out my nose. Oh my gosh. The doctors uh, patched up the, uh, the cracks in my skull the best they could. Um, would find out a few years later that they didn't get it completely and I was still leaking uh, into my sinuses. Um, and they've patched up my ears the best they could, though my right side uh, taking a little more damage. I had a little more hearing loss on my right side. And of course, they tried to save my life, my eyes, but couldn't. So, yeah, within a couple of days, it was confirmed that I would be totally blind for the rest of my life. And, you know, sitting there in that hospital, the, yeah, those, you, of course, you're, there's a whirlwind of things going on from, yeah. you know, the doctors and nurses and, um, you know, nonprofits or organizations that were coming through. And, and of course, it's on the Beltway and all these dignitaries and elected officials always want to come and shake hands. It was always, it was so busy. But of course, there's, you know, there's, 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 there's quiet times and at night. And what I didn't realize, uh, quickly learned is that with total blindness gets the added bonus of a sleep disorder because you can't reset the circadian rhythm, you know, your body's internal clock to sunlight. So I'd be sitting there in the middle of the night thinking about the rest of my life or what was left of it or what I'd lost and, you know, asking all these you know, those voices in my, my head asking all the wrong questions. Why me? What if, you know, what if I'd done something differently, stepped over here or, you know, paid more attention to something else? And what if I did something different? And uh, just thinking, you know, why did this happen to me? Yeah. You know, it's just so hard. I've been training so hard. I've been doing so well. And we were just months away from wrapping up that, that deployment. But all of this stuff, I mean, it was angry, but I was asking, I was asking all the wrong questions and questions that would never have an answer. So it just is, it's, it's this endless cycle and downward spiral. And thankfully uh, I did have that military training. I had my, my family at my bedside and, you know, we'd been through tragedy before. And I had my my brothers and sisters and arms up and down those hallways, you know, going through their own fight. And it was when I started thinking about them again, it was when I took my thoughts off of me and onto my my blood family and my military family that I realized, you know, I 
I don't have a monopoly on pain, right? We, everybody in life goes through hardships, goes through tough times. We all struggle. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, I don't belong. Like my life isn't just mine. I'm responsible for, and I'm responsible to, I've got my son, my mom, my dad, my brother and sister, you have got all of these other warriors they're facing down those demons. They're facing down. They're fighting for their lives. So who am I to say that I'm gonna? I, I can quit. Like my excuse is better than anybody else's, and that I can, I can just say no. I'm. I can't go forward. So I decided then and there, if I was gonna be blind for the rest of my life, I was gonna be the best darn blind guy I could be, and I started getting to work first, getting better. And then, you know, getting to know how to do, you know, how to how to be a blind person. You start asking the right yeah. questions instead of why is this happening to me? You know, why is this happening for me? What can I learn from this? And asking instead of uh, why, or, or I instead of saying I can't do this, start asking how can I? How can I do this a different way? Wow, that is, you know, we we don't teach resiliency anymore. We don't teach kids to to get yeah. back up. And I, I was I saw something on Facebook yesterday. Uh, one of the NFL football coaches saying that his players were complaining to the head. He was an assistant coach. Were complaining to the head coach because he was too hard on them. And I'm thinking, you don't deserve to play in the NFL if you if you can't handle them being hard on you and thank God you're not in the military. I mean, that's, you know, it's, that's where we, we teach resiliency. And I'm curious, Aaron, was there any certain, I know your, your wife was there, your brothers and and, uh, your family was there, but was there, was there anyone else that just really during that time that you were at Walter Reed that just really spoke into your life that you, you just look back and you go that their, their time with me was meaningful. No, absolutely. I mean, there were so many people that influenced uh, who I am today and the decisions I made. In fact, right there and uh, Walter Reed, uh, somebody had helped me you know, pick me out, out of that, that quote unquote dark space, uh, was a fellow team leader in my company who had gotten injured just a couple of weeks before me. In fact, when I was on my vacation time back in the States, I was actually in the DC area visiting family. And that's where we had our Thanksgiving uh, reunion. And uh, I learned about his injury. So I was, I was one of the, I was the first one to get to Walter Reed to find out how he was doing and, wow. and see him. And Kyle uh, was a great, great guy. Yeah, it was a terrific personality. And, and I got to the nurse's station. I asked them, I started asking them all the questions, like what happened? And they couldn't tell me because of you know confidentiality. But they said I could wait in his room. He was he was he still hadn't come out of ICU. So he would he would come out in just a minute, you know, come out soon. So I went into the room and right beside his bed was a chair, and sitting on the chair was this pile of clothes. You know, some you know veteran service organization dropped off some some clothes donated. It was like uh, sweatpants, sweatshirts, shorts, t-shirt, and sitting on top of this neatly folded pile of clothes was was one shoe. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. Yeah. Uh, so uh, soon after I got in there, he was wheeled in and I could see him on this gurney. And of course, yeah, on you know, the impressions under the, the sheets, of course, there was only one leg. Mm. And Kyle sees me and I told you, he's got a fantastic personality, but I think it was at this point, it was also assisted by the uh, um, uh, anesthesia a little bit still, uh, because he's, <laughs> he saw, he saw me and his big goofy smile, you know, and he goes, Hey, oh, dude, what are you doing here? Still thinking I was in, <laughs> I was in Afghanistan oh. and uh, I told him, and he leans into me kind of conspiratorially and says, Hey, I think I kicked myself in the face. <laughs> <laughs> but the worst, worst thing, worst thing you could say about you know, the whole thing at the moment was, um, man, that ruined a, an awesome calf tattoo. And <laughs> two weeks later, I'd find myself just down the hall going through my own, you know, situation. He wheels up one day uh, in a wheelchair and he comes to the side of my bed and he goes, hey, dude, give me your hand. Uh, feel this. I'm like, whoa, you know, you don't, this is not when you trust your, your fellow military. Absolutely. But he, he had two weeks of stubble, of, of beard growth. And he goes, man, the Marines have this uh, uh, liaison, Marine EOD technicians, right? So as soon as they get out of ICU, out of surgery, he asks them, how are you feeling? If they say you know, they're doing fine, which they all pretty much have to, the Marines, uh, he hands them a razor and says, get back into regulations. Yeah, get you know, shave that beard. And Kyle, Kyle goes, the Army EOD techs, we don't have that liaison guy. So grow your beard out. It's driving it's driving the Marines crazy. Oh my gosh. And it was definitely what I needed to pull myself out of my funk and get, you know, get to work on myself and my, my attitude. So uh they asked me where I was gonna retire. And I said I didn't want to. Maybe it was a little uh denial, but I'd learned about uh a, a couple active duty army guys uh, soldiers that were were still uh you know doing the you know they were doing administrative roles but they were blind fully blind guys that were still active duty and i said you know i can't obviously i can't do the job you know now yeah they don't even they don't even let eod techs that are you know, colorblind but i could i could instruct and i could teach the next guys what to do and what not to do uh, so they sent me to uh, first to the uh, um, Blind Rehabilitation Center, blind school in Augusta, Georgia, the VA hospital there. And for six months, I learned how to use all this technology, the uh, barcode scanners for my pantry, the uh, voiceover, text-to-speech on my, my, my computer, my phone, how to walk with a cane, how to pair my socks, stuff like that. And, wow. you know... And then uh, they sent me to uh, the, the EOD school at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida Panhandle. Uh, 
for the next four years or so, or just a, actually just a year and a half, I was an instructor and I began running, whitewater kayaking, mountain climbing, running, running marathons and speaking around uh, the country, telling my story of this uh, success through struggle. And um, I, it was pretty cool. I mean, I, I, all I was doing, I wasn't blazing any new trails. I was just trying to figure out how to be, you know, be me, uh, without, you know, a, a set of tools that I used to rely on. So I just looked up other people that were doing this and I found Eric Weinmayer, who's a first blind person to climb Mount Everest. And, you know, I looked him up and I went climbing with him. Went to did a nineteen thousand foot peak in the Peruvian Andes, and wow. Lonnie Bedwell, who is the first blind, uh, first blind person to kayak the entire Grand Canyon. It, I looked him up and I went you know, kayaking with him. We we did sections of the Yellowstone River, and it was amazing. It was terrifying, of course. But again, I'm not, I didn't want fear to, to hold me back. In fact, it was fear that uh, inevitably you know, got me out to do this. I was terrified of being stuck on my couch, stuck mm. by, my, by my condition, you know, maybe crawling into a bottle or popping pills. I needed to get outside. I needed to be around people. And I didn't want to be uh, defined by my injuries. So I was, I was make, make, making a pretty decent go of it for about four years until, you know, the complications with the injury snuck up on me again. That's, uh, you know, that, that crack in my skull. Well, mm-hmm. You know, a path out is also a path in. And uh, in September of 2015, I contracted bacterial meningitis. And it put me right back in the hospital. It nearly killed me. But in the process, the uh, while fighting the bacteria, the um, uh, the meningitis stole what was left of my hearing that the blast hadn't taken. Mm. Yeah, so there I was in the hospital again. Um, at first it felt like I was underwater and people trying to talk to me from the edge of the pool or something. Uh, But uh, my mom was by my side again. My my, my girlfriend was there. Uh, My sister had come in uh, from, from Baltimore and she is, she was a, a nurse and they all, you know, they, they supported me and helped me back to health. And when the doctor broke the news that I'd be, I'd be, I'd be, I was going deaf. I was sitting there and I said, doctor, what you're trying to tell me is that I'm going to be hundred percent blind and a hundred percent deaf. You mean I'm never going to have to pretend to pay attention ever again? There's a silver lining to everything. Absolutely. I I love what you said that 
the, yeah, the fear it. of being stuck on the couch was more concerning to you than the fear of getting out and doing things. Um, paraphrasing, but that just, mm. that is a powerful statement. Yeah. I mean, of course, uh, it was terrible news. Um, I like using humor to diffuse situations. It's like my, my pressure release valve and it helps me. Uh, it's also a, it kind of a, a a loophole back door hack to gratitude and if you're always looking for the bright side even if it's just a you know crack a joke I'm like what what's good about this situation there couldn't be anything yeah. good about you know going deaf and blind and I thought that I'm like well you never have to pretend to pay attention and it must have been it must have been the fact that i'd already lost too much you know so much of my hearing but i didn't hear my mom or my girlfriend or my sister laugh um uh, must have been the deafness but uh <laughs> i also just like the blindness the you know the deafness came with an added bonus gift i'd lost my vestibular balance that inner ear gyro mm. And uh, even in the hospital room, and I'd fall asleep, you know, in the bed, and I have dreams of just falling and wake up leaping out of my bed. Uh, thank goodness for the the hand, you know, the handrails in the bathroom where I'd fall right off the toilet. Wow! And, and I got, I came home in a wheelchair, so I couldn't get on my treadmill. I mean, I've been running marathons. And just just a few months prior to the meningitis, I'd run my I'd run the Boston Marathon, and I was I was on top of the world uh, in the spring of 2015. I'd, I'd climbed three 14,000 foot peaks in Colorado. Uh, I'd gone hunting for you know on camera. If you can see that guy above the door, yeah. I did that, you know, I went hunting for that guy after going blind. And I uh, went kayaking with Lonnie again. And I was two weeks away from heading out to Tanzania and climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, which would be the first of you know, my attempt at the seven summits, the highest peaks on every continent. And here I was in the hospital with the meningitis, deaf, and I come home a few weeks later and I'm just sitting at my breakfast bar. You know, I'm sitting at my you know kitchen counter. You're holding on to the edge of the counter so I don't fall over mm. and thinking, you know, you know, those 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 questions again, the demons I call them, the the what ifs, the why me is now it was like like when have I paid my fair share? When is when, when is this guy paid his dues, right? Yeah. When when has this one soldier sacrificed enough? And you know, it was it was another one of those I don't know funny ironic moments, maybe a little sardonic humor. I was sitting there thinking, man, I've been I've been talking about that triumph over tragedy and I was speaking and here I was somebody you know the god the fates destiny saying oh yeah prove it 
<laughs> you know, wow. uh, you know, do it again, put your money where your mouth is. And I'm thinking, Ugh, jerk. Uh, but, um, I had to, I had to, I had to focus on not just, you know, change the questions again. I'm sitting there really upset. It would be a chance that I could hear again, but it would take months. It would be six months before one of the, well, uh, yeah, uh, there would be, it would be six months mm. you know, before I could hear, you know, be able to, you know, get that cochlear implant tuned in to the point where I could hear anything. Be another year. It would be an entire year before I could actually have a conversation like you and I are having. And that whole, whole time, you know, I didn't, I didn't have my, my balance. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't really, I couldn't like lace up and go for a run with my, my running partners. Like I, I used to, uh, um, couldn't uh, everything that, uh, everything that I was using and all those tools, uh, adaptive devices, the, Barcode scanners, the, the you know the text to speech, computer, you know the and and phone, all silenced. It's kind of another one of those ironies where I thought, oh man, I should have learned Braille when I was at blind school. Um, <laughs> oh well, <laughs> that's, that's got to be that's got to be scary just to to be in the dark, no hearing, just unaware of everything that's going on other than touch. Yeah, I mean, everything, every, there was no way to get a message in, right? No way to communicate. I could talk, but my, uh, that was like, Braille literally was the only way I could have read anything because I couldn't listen to my audiobooks anymore. I couldn't listen to my emails, listen to anything. In fact, my uh, girlfriend, began writing every single letter of every single word she needed to say to me in the palm of my hand. Oh my gosh. Uh, that was, imagine how tedious and frustrating that was. Yeah. But for that six months, I was, was trapped in my body. And imagine how isolating and lonely uh, that, that is. And and when people started talking about, you know, the, like the, the quarantine time with COVID, people complaining about just being cooped up in their house. That was you nothing know. compared to what you experienced. It was certainly a, a difficult time. It really yeah. was. It was, it was uh, one of the toughest things uh, ever been through. And uh, we're all social creatures. Yeah. That's, that's why... You know, that um, uh, solitary confinement is such an effective punishment for our worst criminals. Because just being around other humans is, yeah. is so important. So, uh, you know, I I had to turn the questions around, right? Mm-hmm. The same questions all over again, right? Why is this happening to me? And... I was thinking, you know, like that, you know, that sardonic question, you know, the joke about, you know, um, you know put your money where your mouth is, right? And, <laughs> you know, do it again. I was, I've been talking about that, you know, 
triumph over tragedy and success through struggle and the you know god fate destiny it was it was uh you know testing me again right oh yeah you well you're you're winning i want to go back to something as we transition real quick to to kind of what you're doing now but i want to go back to something make a comment henry cloud wrote a book called the power of the other and it really talks about he talks about his son-in-law who's a navy seal but it talks about how sometimes other people believing in us and other people speaking into our life, just like Kyle did for you, um, really can can make all the difference in the world. And so if you haven't read that, I would suggest you read it sometime. It's a, it's a. Oh, great suggestion. I'm always looking for, but oh, always looking for a great book. Yeah, I, absolutely. Uh, I, I think um, we forget sometimes the power yeah. of, of other people. Oh, that's great. Yeah. In fact, it was, so what it do was, you, my, you're, you're, my go, go ahead. Go ahead. You talking about your girlfriend? Yeah, I, I think I could still hear you. It's still kind of broken up. Go ahead and share what you were going to share. Can you, are you getting my input? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Well, uh, I was just saying it. It's, it's definitely my um, my family. You know, my mm. my girlfriend, my wife now, my my mom, my sister, my dad. They all swarmed in to take care of me. You know, through that you know the difficult time. And of course, it was when I turned the focus around off of me, my pain. Uh, and on to others the it was really that that pivot point it was really the growth point in my life I was uh you know the, it was the, the why me 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 and I how all about my pain it was there's we talking about books and uh recently listened to uh the book of joy Dalai Lama and uh mm-hmm. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, mm-hmm. Fant- fantastic book. And there's a part of that book where he talks about what, uh, I think it was uh, Dalai Lama was in the back of a car. He was having a terrible stomach pain and they were rushing him through the city to get to the hospital. And, you know, he just looked out the window and he saw this, this child, dirty, uh, distended belly, flies all around his eyes and, he thought about that that young child's, you know, but what that child was going through and you know, pain, poverty, all of that. And he could physically feel his own pain alleviated when he took his mind off of that and onto somebody else's pain. And I was uh, sitting in, in you know my house, worrying about my pain, making it worse. Mm. And the holidays were coming up. I decided, you know, you know, it's funny. I did, I did anything. You know, I did exactly what somebody in my situation would do. I started a chocolate company. Um, actually, the, the holidays were coming, and I decided that I was going to stop focusing on me. I was going to start uh, focusing on the holidays. I was going to throw a huge Thanksgiving meal, 
huge feast. I invite everybody, the family, neighbors, even a few of the stranded EOD techs uh, at the base who maybe not not have enough money saved up or leave days saved up to go to their own homes. They, you know, share our table. And uh, I started cooking weeks in advance. I started making cakes and cookies and pies and just putting them in the freezer. And um, you know, started, I started. I started making fudge, batch after batch of fudge, and, and you know, I would make one flavor after another. Another just change the different components and just throw nuts or spices or whatever in there, and, and you know, finish one batch, set it aside, start another one. And I just make so much fudge. In fact, uh, my my wife now noticed two things. One. She saw it was a smile on my face. She hadn't seen that in months. And the other thing she noticed was the fudge was just piling up. Uh, so she started, I said, she, she started sneaking it out the front door. Like you've got to be real stealthy around a blind deaf guy. Uh, um, she just gave it away. And people started coming back and asking if they could buy more. You know, oh, wow. Capitalist in me said, well, of course you may. Business was started. And it was funny how out of, you know, necessity, out of chaos, you know, out of, you know, turmoil comes opportunity, you know. Absolutely. Failure and pain and trauma, it's, it's you know, it's rife with information if you're willing to learn and opportunity if you're willing to work. And uh, I I came out of going blind and deaf as an entrepreneur and a speaker and an ultra runner. And and one of the things I like, the way I I put it um, a lot of times to people is just like in EOD with, uh, you know, in the army, most of the time we, we, uh, are grouped in three three soldier teams, three technicians with one um, team leader, and each team is given a sh- shipping container full of tools and everything. Like I said, from from landmines and grenades to biochemical hazmat gear and weapons of mass destruction, nuclear bombs. We have tools for all of it in the shipping container. Yeah, bomb suits and robots, you name it. Uh, so we get deployed with this container full of tools and we get to uh, you know, our area of operation or AO and are given an armored truck and it can't fit all of the tools. So we have to leave some behind and take what we're most likely gonna need. And we have to leave some tools behind, but we still have to do our jobs without you know with or without tools and then get to afghanistan and we're there's no roads it's all dirt paths and we have to go dismounted on foot and we can only carry what tools we could fit in our rucksacks on our backs and of course we still have a job to do no matter what dangers are ahead um general jim mattis and his, his book call sign chaos said, uh, you know, things being hard were never a good excuse for mission failure. Mm. Mm. 
And that was it. I had to leave some tools behind, made things harder, but I still had a mission. I still had to be Aaron Hale, soldier, veteran, father, husband, son. I had these roles. I had a mission and I had to get, you know, I had to get busy learning how to adapt and overcome. Wow. You know, that, that's a perfect transition to how, you know, how does somebody reach you if they want you to come speak and, or, or just, you know, maybe coach them? How, how can they reach you and um, where can they find you at? Easiest way is right through uh, my webpage, uh, pointofimpactpod.com. And you can follow me on uh, my my podcast, Point of Impact with Aaron Hale, on all the major you know platforms and YouTube. And you can contact me anyway for the, through there. And of course, Aaron at shoot, I almost forgot. Uh, Aaron Hale Podcast at gmail.com. Awesome, awesome, Aaron. Your your story is absolutely phenomenal, and just the what you've overcome and the fact that you have uh, you, you continue to pick up the tools that you do have, create new tools, find new tools and just continue to literally run um, and, and keep going. And so, man, thank you so much for just for being an inspiration. Thank you so much for being on my show today. And I just look forward to connecting further and, and working with you in the future. Well, I genuinely uh, appreciate you having me on your show. I just want to remind everybody that you know, like I, I am an an average Joe, a, a, a normal, uh, you know, you know that all American slacker guy, uh, just put in an extraordinary situation. If we don't know what we're capable, how strong we are, until we need to be, and absolutely, we all can be. Absolutely. Uh, Appreciate being on your show. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate you.